0: morning, what we want to do, like Pastor mentioned, is to start a brand new sermon series called Motivation. And we're going to be covering the book of Titus. And I'm really looking forward to talking about Titus. And really, it's a a letter from Paul to uh, a person named Titus and uh, discovering all the things that God has to say to us about what does it mean to really see every aspect of our lives really motivated by the gospel. So I wanted to first start with the definition of the word motivation. According to the Cambridge English Dictionary, it's enthusiasm for doing something, the need or reason for doing something, willingness to do something, or something that causes such willingness. So a lot of somethings in there, but when we think about motivation, this is something that I think all of us struggle with at some point in time in our lives, right? Whether it's how excited we are for something, or whether we feel the need to, and you know, typically procrastination, laziness, those are all things that we've all struggled with at some point of our lives. And so when we think about that, when we think about this sermon series, as we do it on the book of Titus and we call it motivation, the reason why we wanted to do that is to specifically address all the different areas of lives that we might feel unmotivated in, or all the areas that we're motivated by other things that aren't connected to the gospel. And so we're gonna do a six part sermon series called Motivation. And the three aspects that we really wanna focus on during this series is number one, we really wanna focus on biblical literacy as we go through this. There are so many of us that we've never really dug into a passage in Scripture, we've really never read a whole book from beginning to end. And so we wanna use this opportunity, we'll be studying the book of Titus, the same passages. In our life group so that's something to look forward to to be able to say God what is it in this passage that you want to speak to me about not just something regurgitated from someone else from a sermon from a passage from a preacher but God what is it that you're speaking to me about and how can I learn to live that out in every area of my life not just on Sundays not just on a Tuesday or a Wednesday the second aspect that we wanted to focus on is this idea of Christian living And one thing that we'll notice is that the whole book of Titus, it talks about different ways that we can live out our faith. And one thing that Pastor Seth mentioned earlier is this idea of gospel fluency. And it's not just a Sunday thing where we just know the gospel and we repeat it in our heads, but how can we know how the gospel is relevant for every single day of the week? Monday when we go to work. In the evenings when we go back to our roommates or to our friends, on the weekends, when we spend time with our families, how does the gospel aspect impact every part of our lives so that we live the life, the Christian life that God has promised for us? And the third aspect that we want to focus on during this series is connected to that, it's just being motivated by the gospel. And everything that we do, can the gospel be our core and foundational motivation? For why we live the way that we do, why we make the decisions that we make, why we speak the words that we speak, how we relate with people. We want to see everything motivated because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we want to cover this morning. And today what we're going to start off with is Titus 1, and we're going to be looking into verses 1 to 4, We're just covering the introduction. So if you uh, don't have the passage or if you don't have a Bible on you, hopefully you can share with someone, you can turn to Titus one uh, one thing I want to remind us as well is we also have an app uh, on the Google Play Store, the App Store. You can go search HMCC and there's some fill-in-the-blank notes and some of the passages, references will be there so you can follow along with the message as well. So before we get into the message uh, and the passage, I want to just start with a question. The question for us this morning is how many of us, we would trust and live in a building or a tower? where the foundation is not stable? Probably no one, right? None of us would want to do that. And there's a photo here of a building uh, by, uh, actually, in Hong Kong. I don't know if some of you are familiar, but this was uh, last year in Hong Kong. There's a building, the Elements Mall. Anyone familiar with Elements Mall? You've been there before. Some of you live there. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, what is this, right? If you didn't hear the news already, there were cracks developing in some of the buildings around Elements Mall. Elements Mall, that that building is a a huge complex, with a huge mall, and there's many residential buildings. There's the ICC there. And there were cracks developing in the concrete near the foundation of the building. And it caused a lot of uproar. There were news articles about it. Residents were worried about what's going to happen. And they noticed that the building was sinking. It was sinking by a couple uh, centimeters. And it really caused a lot of confusion and, and difficulty because who wants to live in a building that's sinking? Who wants to purchase a building, purchase an apartment for tens of millions of dollars in a building that's sinking? You would never want to do that. And it just boggles our minds for why anyone would be OK with that. But of course, you know, politically and, and in the news, there's all these back and forth blaming. And, And we don't know exactly what the reason was. There's a lot of finger pointing. Uh, But I wanted to share another example of a city that's not too too dissimilar from Hong Kong. It also has sky high prices for apartment rents. There's a city in San Francisco where there's actually a really nice building right downtown uh, with new apartment buildings. And it was in 2016 that they discovered a similar problem. And I wanted to share with you a news report about that problem and what happened, and how the residents, uh, how it was impacting the residents, and the problems that would ensue, and why having a firm foundation is so important for us. So let's watch this video together. Wow, aside from the corny sinking jokes, right? That was a, a really scary news report. Can you imagine if you were a resident in that building and you found out that your, your apartment building was sinking? 16 inches, that's about this, this far off. It's, a little bit, it's about a, a foot and a half. That's, that's in a crazy amount of sinking for a building of that size. And, and for many of us, and you, you heard the residents talking, that what can they do? They can't really sell it because no one wants to buy it. And, and they're scared and they're terrified. And the, you have a geologist saying that if there's an earthquake, it could be really bad. And I don't know if you caught part of the news report, But some of the scientists and geologists were saying that the building wasn't actually built into bedrock. There wasn't a solid foundation for the building. And because there was no solid foundation, it doesn't matter how much, how well the building was constructed, how many awards that the building won. I was doing a little bit more research and they said this was one of the state of the art buildings in San Francisco, won numerous amount of awards for architecture, It costs tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, U.S. dollars, to build. And regardless of how nice it is as a building, if the foundation is not layered in something solid, then there's going to be problems. There's going to be a lot of issues. And the homeowners, they're very motivated to do something about it. They're very motivated to change, to see something happen. Well, that's the question for us, isn't it? Is do we have a firm and solid foundation in our faith? Is it something that we're building on top of that will stand the test of time, that won't have cracks later on in the future, that will allow us to have an enduring and lifelong motivation that won't be based on something faulty? But that's the issue for so many of us. So many of us, we don't have a proper foundation. So many of us, we struggle with low motivation. We struggle with living our life out in every single aspect of our lives, our Christian faith. They'll say, God, you know, a Monday morning, here I am at work again. Here I am, going to go back to, oh, summer's great because I don't have classes for those of us who are students. Some of us are, are still in classes. But I'm like dreading September coming around because it's all going to start all over again. What would it be like if we had a firm foundation that we can build our faith on, that can fuel the right motivation for us in every aspect of our lives? That's why I want to give us the one thing for this morning. And the one thing is that without a godly foundation, we cannot develop a healthy motivation. Without a godly foundation, we cannot develop a healthy motivation. There are two things that we need to keep in mind in order to have a genuine motivation. Hopefully you've turned to Titus 1, chapter 1, 1 to 2. I'm going to give us the first thing for us to have a genuine motivation. It says, real motivation requires knowing the truth. Real motivation requires knowing the truth. Let's read first Titus 1. Let's read the first two verses, verses 1 to 2. It says, Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Christ Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth with accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. When we first start this passage and we're thinking about how real motivation requires notice to, uh, knowing the truth, we realize and we notice that this is the introduction for Paul's letter to Titus. And just some really just quick background information as we notice how Paul introduces the purposes Why he's writing to Titus And who Titus is When we look at this We realize that Paul is writing to Titus And if we study the passage more We notice in other times That Titus is someone who's sent to Crete This island called Crete There's a map here of Crete And uh, what Crete was is It's an island uh, near Greece It's an island uh, off the coast of Greece Or actually it's part of Greece And it's near Turkey, Macedonia, and Bulgaria, etc And during that time There were churches started through different missionary projects and things like that. Churches that had been started in Crete throughout Paul's missionary journeys. What he ended up doing was discipling this person named Titus. And eventually, at some point, he sent Titus to Crete in order to build up the churches. Crete was an island of a lot of trouble, a lot of issues. There was a lot of moral degradation, moral indecency. Uh, There were heresies and false teachers that were attacking the church. And so in this letter, Paul gives his commission to Titus to be able to lead the church and combat the external forces that are coming against the church. And so we notice that Paul, from this context, he begins to introduce the purpose for why he's writing to Titus and what he's going to cover as he writes this letter. In verse 1, we notice that Paul uses the phrase, for the sake of. For the sake of, this idea of what am I doing this for? I'm doing this for a certain purpose. In the NIV, it translates that phrase as to further the faith of God's elect. In order to further something, to advance something, to move something forward. In the New Living Translation, it says, I have been sent to proclaim the faith to those God has chosen. So there's a specific purpose or reason that Paul has been sent for this purpose and Paul is being sent and now passing on this message to Titus so what are the things that Paul has been sent what are the purposes that he's been instructed to further and what is he doing well we notice a couple of things number one he's furthering the faith of God's elect and then also we saw in verse one that he's also furthering the knowledge of the truth for the people And then, if we continue to read on in verse two, we realize he's also furthering because he's indicating that eternal life is on the line for the people in hope of eternal life. And these sound really important. These sound great. And in fact, oftentimes we talk about this in the church, right? It's it's so common to talk about faith, eternal life, knowledge, truth, Bible. All these are great things. And Paul, like, what's so special about this? And I think for many of us, we're, we're very used to this. We've, we've grown up in church our whole lives. We've been part of the culture. Even if we've been in part of Life Group for the last year or two, we just kind of got used to it. Now, for some of us, we're like so used to it to the point where uh, in the beginning of Life Group, your Life Group leader asks that question, what are you expecting for Life Group this year? What is it that you hope to get out of Life Group? You know, here we go again. It's going to be the same combination of faith, Jesus, growing in our faith, praying, reading the Bible, all right? Let's just get this over with, right? Leader, come on. We know this already. Community, loving one another, it's the same old thing. And we get so easily complacent or jaded into, oh, it's just the same old thing. But Paul here in this passage, he inserts something that if we look a little bit closely, that maybe we didn't consider, that we didn't notice. Let's look closer at what Paul is furthering the faith for. We notice here that Paul is writing for the sake of God's elect. That phrase, God's elect, in the New Living Translation, it says, to those God has chosen. It's this idea of God choosing us, this group of people that God has specifically selected, identified as his people. Paul emphasizes this in other passages and other letters he's written in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5 in the New Living Translation. It says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Isn't that amazing? We have a relationship with God, not because of who we were, not because of the things that we did, not because, like, we chose God, but because God chose us. He decided in advance, way before we were born, that he would choose us, that we would be his children. How many of you, show of hands, you chose your parents? No one, right? None of us. None of us, and some of us are like, I wish I could, Right? But God chose us; He picked us out of all the people in the world. He chose us as His one and only child. He chose us as His sons, His daughters, because He loved us. He cherished us. And Paul is emphasizing this idea that we are His chosen people; we are His elected people. But as I was reading this, and I was saying, "Okay, God, if You chose us, if..." if you called us your elect, God's elect, then the question I was wondering was, if God has chosen us, why is there a need to further the faith? Paul, I was thinking, Paul, I just want, hey, Paul, let me have a talk with you. Let me have a conversation with you. If you're trying to motivate people, if you're trying to inspire people to further their faith, if you're saying, here, I am Paul, and my purpose and my calling is to further the faith of the people, why would you tell them that they are specifically chosen and they're already guaranteed eternal life? Why? We notice as well that Paul writes, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. The question is, if God promised us eternal life before the ages again, uh, began, why is there a need to continue to further this hope? Isn't that ironic? Like some of us, when we, when we motivate someone, you know, usually the phrases that we, we, we tell them are like, oh, if you don't do this, then this is not going to happen. Oh, if you don't have this, or if you haven't spent the time and energy for this and that, then these are going to be the consequences. But Paul, he's saying, oh, I'm here to further the faith, even though you are already chosen, and I'm here to give you hope of eternal life, even though God already promised it. It's not that motivating. And if anything, I'm less motivated. Like, okay, well, God, well, if, if uh, that's it, then I could just lay back, kick it, and relax. Have fun, enjoy life. I don't know, how many of you have pre-Christian friends who said, oh, I never want to be Christian? Like, why? Why not? Well, because Christians, they have this mentality of like, they have everything already. And so they're like, not motivated, they're lazy. I don't see them doing well in school. They don't seem like they're very diligent and faithful at work. I, mean, I think it's sad that we have that kind of reputation. But for so many of us, that's true of us. That's so true of us because we have this mentality of, well, I've already arrived. I'm saved. So then what? Yeah, What's the point of doing anything? What's the purpose of continuing to build my faith, to grow, to say I need more hope and eternal life if I've already been guaranteed it? There's something different about Paul's motivation and his perspective, and actually his paradigm. Because he doesn't say that, oh, once I've gotten this, or because it's guaranteed, that I am no longer motivated to do that. But all the more, he is motivated. But this is the problem, that we don't don't really understand this, that we always go by our human paradigm by saying, oh, if, if there's this consequence or if there's something I really need to get, then I'm really motivated to do something. But once I've already arrived, then that motivation really disappears. Isn't that how we operate? I, uh, I got a Fitbit about a year and a half ago, and I, I love it. I really was like super into it, like, trying to be like, healthy and all that kind of stuff. And I remember from, uh, getting the Fitbit and I, I got, I'm like super competitive. And so everything that I would do was geared toward like making a certain step count. Now some of you might like have different uh, step trackers and things like that. Like you have like Xiaomi or whatever. You're like, okay, let, let's like hit 10,000. So when I first got it, I was like super into like getting like this mark, this goal that I had. And then the nice thing about Fitbit is that you can also like uh, do it socially, so that if your other friends or family have Fitbit, then you can compete with them, and that like fuels my super competitive side. So what ended up happening was my, my parents like gifted me this Fitbit, and then I guess they had an extra one, and so my dad got into it, <laughs> and I was like, okay, dad, I'll friend you on Fitbit, right? And so uh, there's this like score thing that you can you know compare and challenge one another, and then they'll like add up all the uh, steps you've taken, all the Stairs you climb, everything, and they give you a composite score, and then there's a leaderboard. You can see how your score compares with everyone else that you're friends with. So I'm friends with a couple people, and then suddenly when I started following my dad, I was like, OMG. <laughs> He's super in shape, right? Every single week, they would send me a report of how I'm doing compared to other people and my dad. And I'm constantly like, one, two, three, four, and then my dad's always number one. I'm like, what's going on, right? He's just like, He's much older, like, Dad, what are you doing? You're constantly at the top of the leaderboard, and I can't ever beat you, right? And he's like, I don't know, I just run every day. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's nothing better to do with your life, right? You're empty nested, and kids are out of the ground. So like, oh, you have nothing better to do with your life. And so, you know, I started trying to do whatever I could in order to increase my step count. Like, I'm one of those guys, like, even though, like, when you play sports or whatever, it's more comfortable to take things off, I'll wear it when I play basketball, because I want to get more steps. It's a satisfying feeling after you're doing like 20,000 steps. Amazing, right? Or like for those of you who don't know, C H K is a mountain, and so sometimes even though it's like super hot and I don't want to be sweating, I'll like climb up the mountain just so I can get some more steps in, right? So I can k- try to compete with my dad. And once in a while, I'll be able to beat him, but more often than not, I'm always the loser, right? Uh, because he has nothing better to do with his life. <laughs> But I found something, no that's not true. He's he's enjoying golf and stuff like that. Anyways. But I found something very interesting about trying to meet that goal and trying to compete with my dad. The first couple of months that we did that, I was super motivated. I was like, let me try to do everything, let me try to. I would go up the mountain like at least a couple times a week. You know, even though people were like, why are you walking up the mountain? Because I was just arriving at the meeting like, all drenched in sweat. You know, I was like, why would you do that? And I was like super motivated and I was trying to do whatever I could in order to attain it. But after a while, after I beat my dad a couple times, I was like, oh, I, I could beat him. But then, you know, it just kind of waned. You know, that, 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 the desire to meet that goal, it just kind of dissipated after some time. Now, I'm no longer motivated as much. Even if I don't, like, normally I try to hit 10,000, but even if I don't hit 10,000, I'm like, eh. Who cares, right? And then, like, let's say I'm at 9,950. I'll just take my wrist and I'll just go like this. <laughs> oh, 10,000, I got it, right? Like, I made it, <laughs> right? And so I'm no longer genuinely motivated to do things for my health anymore. And then now I've moved on to, like, sleep tracking, right? Which is much more interesting. <laughs> but I realized there's this, there's this concept at work, and just a very human-oriented mindset of, Oh, once I hit that goal, I'm motivated up to the point where I can hit that goal. And once I hit that goal, then I am no longer motivated to hit the goal anymore. Once I achieve it, once I accomplish it, I've accomplished it. And then I move on to other things. There's no desire to continue to do things genuinely for my health. There's no genuine desire to say, hey, I want to continue this because I love it. Because I love being active. Because I'm really wanting to do these things. Because I love Fitbit tracking and you know, I love competing with people. It just kind of dissipates, even though I consider myself pretty, you know, motivated, you know, exercise-wise. But I realize that motivation, it just disappears so quickly. It just dissipates so easily. And, it, and it's totally different than things that we love, right? There are things that we love that no matter how many milestones we reach, we continue to do it. I remember, like, when I was younger, uh, I was... I, I my parents would like set quotas for me for reading because they really wanted me to like do well on my SATs, which is like the standardized test that you take in the U.S. Like the more you read, the better you're gonna do on the SAT. So my dad would check out like a whole ton of books, just put it on my desk. I'd read this, <laughs> but I would read it because I loved it. And I remember like the Harry Potter books. They came out. That was when I was in like middle school and high school. Um, it was like back in the 2000s, and like the first Harry Potter book came out. And I, everyone was, like, nuts for it. And I remember getting the book, and my parents were like, you got to read more. But no one had to tell me to read more because I just genuinely wanted to read more. And I remember I would get the book, it would, like, have those midnight releases, and you'd line up, and everyone dressed dress up in, like, Harry Potter costumes. really embarrassing. But I would get the book, I would go home, and I would read. And I would read late into the night. My mom would come in and say, stop reading, go to sleep. And I would, and I would pretend, like, okay, I'm a sleep mom, and then she would leave, and I was like, turn on the light, and I'll start reading again. I'll read until like 4 or 5 in the morning. And you know I can't stay awake, right? I'm not the, not the person that could stay awake. I don't know why. I would just be motivated because I just loved it. But this is the problem with so many of our lives is that when we think about the things that we're motivated by, everything is to accomplish something, to achieve something, to get something that we want. And as soon as we get it, then that motivation either dries up or it disappears. Or if we're not getting it yet, then yes, we're motivated for the time that we can get it. But until that thing feels like out of reach, then we totally get discouraged and disappointed. And we just say, what's the use? What's the point? Doesn't this describe us? Everything, almost everything in life, once we get it, then that same motivation doesn't really help us anymore. doesn't really drive us anymore. Whether it's like exercise, we have this new plan, that I'm going to get in shape, I'm going like to meet this many goals, and after you, know, you go to the gym for the first couple of weeks, then it, what happens? It dies off. That food diet that you have, like, oh, I'm going to re- eat really healthy, and you come back from the grocery store, and you're buying all these vegetables, and then after a couple of weeks, weeks, like, I hate eating vegetables. <laughs> I never liked vegetables to begin with. Why did I even try this? Some of us, we try to be disciplined, okay, I'm going to be faithful at work, or I'm going to be faithful in my studies. And you try this new Pomodoro technique and this plan, and you're like, okay, this is what's going to solve things for me. And after you use it the first couple of weeks, then it trails off. Especially when it comes to our faith. Especially when it comes to reading the Bible. I'm going to do the BRP. I'm going to read the Bible all the way through the whole year. And you're really good for the first couple of weeks, and then, oh my gosh, I'm behind two weeks. Oh, forget it. Trying to pray more. Trying to develop in our faith. Trying to go to life group consistently. Trying to grow in our character. God, it's too hard. And more often than not, we get discouraged because we feel like it's such an impossible task of reaching that milestone, like that goal, I have to be like this before I can finally say I've achieved it, I've accomplished it. But that's precisely the paradigm that's the problem. It's because everything that we do is because we're trying to get to somewhere. We're trying to say I'm good enough, I've achieved it, I've accomplished it. Everything that we're doing, we're motivated by getting to that point or that place. Whether it's because, yeah, maybe that's how we grew up all 18 years of our lives, for those of us who are undergrads. For those of us who are working, we've done this for decades, two, three, four decades of our lives. And we've just been working and laboring, and everything in life has told us that you need to do a certain amount in order to get a certain amount. But that is precisely the human paradigm that is totally opposite of the gospel paradigm. The human paradigm says that we do things so that we can uh, accomplish more, we can achieve more, that we could be more loved, that we could be more famous, that we could be more wealthy, that we could be more rich. The gospel paradigm says that we already loved, we already victors in Christ, that we already rich in Christ that we already are purposeful, that we already have an enduring relationship with God, our Father. And that's why we do everything that we do. It's totally flipped, totally switched around. That's why Paul, he says, let me further, my purpose is to further the faith of God's elect. Yes, I know that people, they're already saved, they're already chosen. But it's exactly the people who know that they are chosen, they are loved by God, that want to have more faith, to learn to trust in God that much more. It's those people that know that I I have eternal life. I know that God's promise is true. That, That means I want to know more of God's promises. I want to know how he's true. I want to know how he's the God that never lies. I want to read the Bible more. I want to pray because he is such an amazing God that I can't imagine living without him. How many of us, we think this way. How many of us, we have this gospel paradigm in every aspect of our lives that no longer are we saying, I need to do all these things in a Torah, get somewhere, accomplish something, but saying, God, I've already accomplished these things. God, you've already done this in my life and that's why I do everything that I do. Everything that I do because of what you've already done for me. And what is that truth? What is that truth? What is that thing that God has done for us that motivates us that way? It's the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he rose again, and he ascended to the throne. Something that we know in our minds, something that we've heard so many times. But until it becomes a truth that is spread out, that is understood in every aspect of our lives, it's not really going to make an impact. It's not going to motivate us until we know the depth of our sin. The truth is not just the truth that Jesus is God. It's not just the truth that, you know, we have to go to life. It's not just the truth that church is good. It's not just the truth that we have to grow a little bit. But sometimes the hard truth that we don't want to deal with is that we are so messed up, that we are broken beyond belief, beyond repair, outside of God's intervention, His supernatural promises that we cannot fix ourselves that we cannot help ourselves that we cannot do anything to somehow accomplish the things that we think that we need to do how many of us were at that point where we know we are depraved beyond help beyond any human outside of any supernatural intervention that we need that kind of help paul understood that in his letter To Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verses 15 to 16. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Isn't that amazing? That Paul, the truth that he says is, yes, Christ came into the world, but why did he come into the world? He he came into the world to save sinners. And the reason why Paul understood this so deeply was because he understood how deep his sin was. He confesses, he says, to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. How many of us, we realize and we understand the depth and the magnitude of our sin, how many of us we realize all the things that we do in, in, instead of actually trying to accomplish or move us forward, actually hindering us, separating us from God? How many of us we realize the, the very things that we're trying to do and, and, and some of them are like good things. Like sometimes we, we turn good things into ultimate things. We turn Bible reading, we turn praying, we turn going to church. And we somehow think that God, by doing more of these things, that I'm going to be a better Christian and I'm going to be more liked and I'm going to be more holy. All the time while we're doing that, we feel farther and farther away from God. And you're wondering, God, why? I'm doing all these things. Why do I feel like you're not there? Why do I feel like, you know, this is not it? I'm doing these things. I'm trying hard. Because our paradigm is flipped the wrong way. Because we think somehow by doing these things, then we're going to be more accepted by God. We're going to be more loved by God. We're going to be more cherished by God. But it's in spite of the things that you have done. In spite of the ways that you have hurt people. In spite of the ways that you don't love anyone as you ought to. In spite of the ways that you treat your family. In spite of the ways that you're unfaithful at work. In spite of the ways that you procrastinate. You're a horrible witness to your pre-Christian classmates. In spite of those things, he loves you. He cares for you. And that's why you want to get to know Him and love Him and cherish Him. Can we flip our motivation? And can we imagine actually having a gospel paradigm or motivation so that we will get to this point where we say, you know what, God? I want to live that way. Like, like Paul mentions, in accord with godliness. We saw that in verse 1. That godliness, that, that life that reflects a motivation that comes from Christ. When no one is looking, that it, what it would be like if, if at work we're saying, you know what, God, I'm not going to work just to get the paycheck. I'm not working just so that I can get a raise. I'm not working just so that I can be the, the center of attention so that all my colleagues will love me. But God, I'm working because I love you. I'm working because I know this is the gift that you've given to me, and I just want to do the best that I can. Some of us were so unhappy with work and we blame all the circumstances when really your motivation is, should not be externally motivated. It should come from inside. It should come from saying, God, God you've given to me everything, and, and the least I can do is be part of your purposes to reach out to someone or to further your kingdom by doing something meaningful. Some of us, we struggle with friendships. What would it be like if we treated friendships not as something that we had to accomplish? but it's something we did because we just want to love people because God has loved us so much. I'm wondering if some of us, we struggle with friendships and relationships. It's because you're so worried about what people will think of you. You're so worried about not having the friendships that you want. You're so worried about what are you going to be like when you're 80 and you're like, oh, no one's around me. Why are you worrying about that? Think about who God is and what he's given to us already. And I'm wondering if we're less focused on our friendships, we're more focused on God, then that will actually enable us to have deep and enduring friendships. Because it's not so much about us anymore, but it's about God. Pastor mentioned about giving in church. Why do we always say giving is for you, not from you? It's because what would it be like if we could be a church where we're experiencing God so much, in so many ways we're saying God Man, you've given me so much that even the finances they've given me, even though, you know, I think compared to other people, it doesn't seem like much. But God, you've given me exactly what I need. And man, I've been so blessed. And, and as and I've been growing and as I've been loving you, then man, I want, I want to give more to you. So many of us, we say, okay, 10%, that is the marker that I just, I just have to be, meet the bare minimum and that I did my duty. That is totally not the gospel paradigm. The gospel paradigm says, you know what, God? You love me so much, I want to actually give more. I want to love you more. I want to give of myself because you've given me everything to begin with. And it's such a telltale sign that when we're not giving, when we're not giving out of this desire to love God, that means we're really not growing. That's why we always say over the pulpit during offering time is is that giving is for us, not from us and giving us such a big indicator whether or not we're actually growing in our faith and understanding the gospel. Not because it's a money issue, not because it's a finance issue, but because it's an issue of the heart and whether we trust God deeply or not. I'm really wondering what would our church look like if in every aspect of it, and not just our church life, but when I'm saying what would our church look like, I'm saying All of us as the people of God, we are the church. What would it look like if all of us, we were motivated by the gospel rather than by these external factors and accomplishments that we constantly pursue after? It has to start with our understanding of the gospel. For many of us, we know it up here, but we don't know it down here. And that's why we need to grow in this gospel fluency to be able to say, God, how does your gospel apply it in every single area of my life. Tim Keller, he, he summarizes in the book, Meaning of Marriage, and a couple other books as well. He says, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Does that message of the gospel resonate with us? Not just this morning, but every hour, every second that we live, every difficulty that we have with our bosses, every strain that we have with our families, every stress or anxiety we have with our classes, with our classmates, can the gospel be our foundation in everything that we do? Because if it's not, then we're never going to have that genuine motivation. We have to know this real motivation requires knowing the truth for us to be able to move forward with that foundation. And so we talked about how real motivation requires knowing the truth. Let's continue on in Titus 1. And the second point is not only that real motivation requires knowing the truth, but real motivation requires tuning into God. Real motivation requires tuning into God. Let's continue and read verses 3 and 4 in Titus 1. Starting verse 3, it says, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our savior to Titus my true child in a common faith grace and peace from God the father and Christ Jesus our savior when we think about how real motivation requires tuning into God we notice here that Paul describes what he did and the two aspects that he was motivated by so the first part he was talking about his purposes he was talking about truth. He was talking about gospel paradigm. But now Paul is actually talking about what is he actually doing? Not just the purposes, but what is he actually doing and how is he motivated? And we'll see how he was able to tune into God to be able to do what he did. And so the first aspect that he was motivated by was in in the first point, in verse 3, we see his phrase, at the proper time. That phrase, at the proper time, in the New Living Translation, it's translated as, at just the right time. At just the right time. And then some of us, we, we've experienced that before, right? Like something happens like when, you, when you're transferring uh, from uh, you know, Mong Kok Station to go from the Chun Wan line to the Tong line. You're like, oh, wow, it's perfect. Doors open, you're like, yes, just the right time. You go right through and you're like, oh, it feels so good, doesn't it? Like that was such an opportune moment. That word, just at the right time, is also in the Greek, is the word kairos, which many of us, we've learned what a kairos moment is, right? Or the kairos circle, we've taught that in our church. And it really has this idea of opportune moment the specific moment in time that there's a specific reason or purpose or something happening there that's an opportunity. And we don't know exactly what that was describing for Paul. For Paul, it could have been, he could have been referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. Wow, that was such an opportune thing that Jesus died just at this moment. It could have been how Paul experienced Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was blinded. Regardless, he saw it as an opportune moment that this time as he's talking to Titus, he's saying now at the proper time, at the, just the right time, this Kairos moment, that there's something I'm entrusted to do. because there's an opportunity and I know some for some of us like this this idea of opportunity we feel like oh you know I don't really hear God that way or I I don't really like you know get senses from God and I don't really know I just kind of live life on my own I, I don't really see opportunities you're lying you're lying we see opportunities all the time how many of you like uh like like buying new things new brand new things, they're awesome. How many of you are a like, little bit more cost-effective You like buying used things, right? Used things and like, after you, because if you buy a new thing, it's like 100%. If you buy a used thing, it's like 60% of the cost, but it's pretty much just good as new, right? So I've been like using Carousel a lot recently. Um, for those of you who don't know what Carousel is, it's kind of like a, it's like a, I don't know how, it's like a marketplace where you can buy and sell used things. So you can sell things and list it, post some photos, communicate with other people, and then you can also um, sell things uh, to other, other people. And, and you just kind of meet up and you exchange and you, you cash all that kind of stuff. So I've been like, using Carousel to like, buy different things as we um, move into our new apartment. And a uh, couple of things that uh, I've, I've been realizing I need to buy. I never knew I needed to buy these things, but you know, lo and behold, I'm now in a new life stage. So learning that I need certain things that I never thought I would need. So anyways, one of the things that I was learning to buy was an oven. I realized, oh, wait, we need an oven, like a little toaster oven kind of thing. So I'm like scrolling through and I'm looking through these ovens. And as I'm looking through these ovens, I'm like, wow, I didn't know there's so many different types of ovens. And there's so many people selling ovens. Like, wow, I, I'm like an expert on ovens, right? Now how many dials and the different features and things like that. And, and one of the things that you notice about uh, Carousel is that there's a, yeah, there's a, over here, uh, there's this little heart heart kind of icon. And so that little heart icon means you can like something. And if you like something, that means you track it, and that you kind of keep it in your own library, and you can see how many other people are also liking and tracking it. That creates a sense of anxiety, doesn't it? And I was like looking at some of these ovens, and I was like, OMG. If I don't get this oven now, then all of the ovens are going to disappear. And it was like stressful, because some of these ovens, they had like, there were a couple of ovens that they were really shoddy looking, and I was like zero hearts. I'm like, OK, I'm not going to like that. But then there were some of these nice ovens and they were like 10, 15 hearts, like, oh, oh, uh oh. Like if I don't get this right now, then I'm gonna miss out on the, the best oven for the best price. And then I was like, I was like chatting with a couple of people, and they were like, okay, and then it's always that tense moment where you're like trying to offer them something, and always in the back of your mind, uh-oh, like what if someone's offering something higher? And then, no, it's gonna go. And so that actually happened a couple of times. I was like, offer oh, this person, They're like, sorry, it's been reserved by someone. I was like, no. And then, so I was scrolling through the list. I was like, okay, this one looks really good. And it has some couple of nice pictures. It looked really nice on the outside. I was like, okay, let me offer it to you. And I, like, they were asking for 500. And I offered 350. And they were like, okay. I was like, yes, let's do it. And I was like, kind of impulsive. Because I was like, this is the opportune moment. I got to get this oven. And so I ended up getting the oven. And then it ended up being, like, really dirty on the inside. I was like, no. Like, oh, man. That was not the opportune moment. And so I was like, oh. I was, like, thinking about it. I was like, oh, man like. <laughs> I'm so driven by opportunity. I'm so driven by different things that pop up in my life. And I just feel like I this need to just grab it. And I didn't take the time to really investigate or to see, you know, like, can I get a photo of the inside? Otherwise, it's like really dirty and like I wouldn't want to get it. But now we have a dirty oven in our place. <laughs> and I realized it's so easy in so many areas of our lives to be driven by whatever's most opportune. And for many of us, we think that, oh, I I don't know what opportunity is. I don't really hear God speaking. I I can't sense these moments. No, actually, we have these moments every single day, every single hour, every single week. You have an interview opportunity that comes out of nowhere, you have a new job offer. Someone kind of reaches out to you, an old friend that you haven't been in touch with for a while. It could be uh, just a sunset that it just strikes you as beautiful, like, wow, I've never seen Hong Kong this way. Or it could be a person on the street that you see and you're like, oh, wow, I, I didn't notice this person before. And, and it seems like they're really struggling. We see so many different opportunities throughout our lives and different ways that God is speaking to us. And I'm wondering if we would just tune into God to see and to hear what He's saying and noticing things. I'm wondering if that would really help us to connect with God in a deeper way and realize that these are the opportunities that God is trying to help us to grow. These are the opportunities that God is trying to refine our faith to help us to even be motivated to love Him, to cherish Him, to trust Him. And for so many of us, we're like, you know, I still don't really think that I can hear God. Oswald Chambers uh, he has a devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. He writes this in one of, the, one of the day devotionals. He says, the call of God is not just for a select few, but for everyone. The call of God, he's referencing to God speaking to us, being able to hear his voice. Whether I hear God's call or not depends n- uh, whether I hear God's call or not depends on the condition of my ears. And exactly what I hear depends upon my spiritual attitude. I'm wondering if many of us, we're not hearing God because we're choosing not to. I'm wondering if many of us, we're not tuning into God because we're so consumed with our own lives, with my life, my priorities, my whatever, and we go about our days, and we wake up, and we go and do everything, and we, by the time we get back home, at the end of the day, we're like, wow, man, just the day we flew by, and okay, I accomplished this and this and this, but we totally missed out on all the things that God wanted us to see. Totally missed out. We didn't see that person that was struggling. We didn't notice that person in our life group on that WhatsApp sharing a prayer request, and actually we just passed by that place, that location, where we could have just said hi, or at least prayed for them. We, we, didn't, have, we didn't notice that you know, there was this time at work that instead of just watching YouTube or Korean dramas, that we could have just had a moment, just to be still and just say, God, well, what is it that you're speaking to me about? We didn't notice that colleague of ours that was stressed out, struggling, and we missed that opportunity to be able to share our faith and minister to someone in need. That even though, you know, man, we're like saying, God, it's so hard to reach out to people, and uh, I don't know who I can invite, but right there in our office is someone that maybe God is placing in our lives. How many of us on the MTR, what are we doing? What are we constantly glued to? This little you know, 10-centimeter-by-five-centimeter device with a screen. We're playing, like, games on it, Snapchat, Instagram. We're constantly inundating ourselves with information and technology and entertainment. What would it be like if we just took a moment to say, you know what, God, I I just want to hear what you're saying. I just want to see the people that you care for. I want to understand the perspective that you have instead of just being so into my own world. That maybe the reason why we're so not motivated is because we're so into our own world that we don't have any idea of what God is doing because we haven't been tuning into what his perspective is. One practical way that we can actually learn to tune into God's voice is something called the Kairos Circle. That's something that we've been talking about in our church as a part of the Alive Discipleship Curriculum and the Kairos Circle, I think there's a a photo of it, and it really just starts with a Kairos moment. It Starts with anything, whether it's someone you see on the MTR, it could just be a sunset, it could be a conversation that you had, it could be as big as, you know, a tragedy or an accomplishment, it could be as small as, you know, just seeing the weather, or just hearing something like a song that you're listening to. All of those could be Kairos moments. And when you identify a Kairos moment, you just go through the whole cycle. To be able to say, God, what is it that you're speaking to me about? We need to observe what it is that happened, reflecting, how do I feel? What are my emotions? Discussing it with someone, whether it's your life group, your LCG, your accountability partner. To really understand, God, what are you saying to me? Help me tune in to you. Spend some time in prayer to say, God, speak to me. I'm your servant. I'm attentive. And the second half of the circle is then plan, account, and act. Is Now what am I going to do about it? Because so many of us, we leave it at just like listening and kind of just getting an idea, but we don't really follow through with what God is speaking to us about. We want to be doers of the word, not just listeners, not just hearers. So when we plan, we come up with a tangible action plan. We find some unaccountability. We ask someone, hey, this is what I'm planning to do. Can you help me? Remind me, make sure I do it, and then actually follow through. I believe that it's going to be a powerful opportunity for us to really hear God step out on faith. And like it's amazing when you do something for God, you listen, you hear him, and you step out on faith, and then God answers that prayer. And you're like, wow, God, Like, how come I never experienced this before? And it's that that moment when you're hearing to God, you're listening to God, it's like the most amazing feeling ever. You're like, God, I want to continue to follow you. It's out of that motivation, that tuning into God, that will allow us to be able to say, God, I want to, do, I want to live my life for you in every aspect of my life. It's just at the right time, those opportune moments that we have to be able to listen to, to tune into, to be able to understand what God is doing and to be motivated. And the second thing, the last thing, is that Paul, one aspect was that he was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. In the last verse, verse 4, we realize that Paul repeats this phrase, God our Savior, a couple times. And as Paul is tuning into God and encouraging Titus, I think it's really important how Paul describes God for us to be able to tune into God. He mentions God our Savior, and then in that last section, in the last phrase, he says, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. And that phrase is so key. It's a reminder that the only way that we can tune into God is if we know that God is our Savior. He saved us. He ransomed us. He took us from a place of deep separation to a place that we now have a connection and relationship with God. If we don't have that, then there's no way we can expect to hear from God, to communicate with God, to have a relationship with God, to know God as our Father, to know God as our friend. And Paul reiterates this, and this is only made possible by the gospel message in Romans 5:10 to 11 in the New Living Translation, he says, "For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son." So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God." This is the good news. This is the gospel paradigm that yes, we were separated, we were afraid, we were away from him, we could not hear him, but God, he was not okay with just doing that. So what did he do? He sent his son to death so that no longer are we strangers, no longer are we foreigners, no longer are we aliens to a God of the universe, but he is intimately involved in our lives. He is our friend. We have now a friendship with God. And it is only because of our understanding that Jesus, he has died for us. He sacrificed himself on the cross because otherwise we will be separated from the consequences of sin, of our brokenness. But the consequences didn't stop there. He rose again so that we can have a guarantee and we can have confidence that he has power to overcome that so that we can have this relationship with him. That is... The greatest news in all the universe, in all of history, there's nothing better than that, that allows us to say, you know what, God, now I can tune into you. You know what, God, I, I've, maybe some of us are here this morning, and we've never actually had a relationship with God. Maybe we've been to church our whole lives. Maybe we've been doing the church thing, but we've never said, okay, you know, I've, I've never felt God, I've never related to God, I've never seen God as my friend. I want to invite and challenge some of us to take that first step to say, God, you know what, I want to invite you into my life as my Savior and as my Lord. I want a relationship with you. I don't want to just know you as this deity that kind of just does things, that I still have to obey as this, you know, master. But I want to know you as a friend. And if some of us are in that place this morning, then I want to invite us to say, to, just, just to pray and to say, God, I want to invite you into my life. I want to confess myself. I want to know that I want to be honest that, man, there's so many things that I've done that separate me from God, that are sinful, that are are horrible in God's eyes. But the fact that God has loved me in spite of that is the greatest news ever. I want to believe and I would trust you in that. I want to live for you because of that. And for many of us, uh, those of us who, yeah, maybe this is just a good reminder. Let's recommit to God. Let's trust him. Let's say, God, if this is your truth, And if this friendship, this tuning into God is something that I can have, then I want to be motivated by that. Instead of all these other external things, I want to trust in you. And that's why the one thing for this morning is that without a godly foundation, we cannot develop a healthy motivation. I want to give us some next steps. And the next steps uh, I'm giving is actually going to be uh, CPR, because some of us, we're dying, right? We're literally dead because our motivation is on flatline, right? We have no more beating in our motivations, but Uh, A couple practical things for us to be able to resuscitate our motivation. The first C is check your understanding of the gospel paradigm. Check your understanding. Some of us, we've been trained in gospel fluency, but that doesn't mean you know it in every aspect of your life. For some of us, gospel fluency, this idea is brand new. And if you don't really understand it, you've never practiced it before, then I want to challenge you, encourage you, go ask your life group leader. Go talk to that person, your LCG, who who has been trained and who understands how to do gospel fluency. Talk to them. Ask, Say, hey, how can I learn this gospel fluency? How can I understand the gospel paradigm in every aspect of my life? The second thing, P, practice listening to God using the Kara circle. The, the diagram that we have here, I think it's available. Your life group leaders can provide it to you. I think it's in the mobile app. Go, just look at it. Find, identify Kairos moments. Just go throughout the day. Don't just be on your phone the whole time during the MTR. Turn it off. Listen to some worship music. Just say, God, what is it that you're speaking to me about? Have some moments of silence. Even if it's just five minutes, just to be able to say, God, what are you telling me? I want to be in tune with you this week. Let's commit to doing that. And then the last one, R, reflect on your motivation and areas of your life outside of church. I have no problems with us. I think many of us, were involved in life. We go every single week. We're serving. We're on ministry teams. We're doing all the good things in church that we want to do. But that's exactly the problem, is we leave it there. And I want us to begin to reflect, spend some time to say, God, how far is my faith into other areas of my life? How far does my faith extend into my workplace? How far does it extend when I'm working on a project that I'm trying to frantically finish at the deadline, or that when I'm interacting with my colleagues, how far does my faith extend into when I'm home and I'm tired and I don't want to deal with the crying baby, or I don't want to deal with my spouse, or I just want time alone? How does it go into that situation? And some of us students, how does it apply when we think about internships that we're doing right now, classes, people, students that we don't want to deal with, our friends? How can we reflect and really believe that these are the areas of motivation that we need to understand in a gospel-centered way? So hopefully we'll be able to resuscitate and see our motivation come back to life this week. Let's stand together as we close this morning. Like when we think about motivation and really having a firm foundation, I think sometimes, you know it just kind of gets discouraging. We're like, God, I, I've tried this before. You know I've done this. I, I, I always lose perspective, and I, for some reason, I just could never get it right. And so constantly we go back and forth, we go up and down in this battle and this fight to say, "God, I, I can't keep this motivation. It just feels like every ounce of me is fighting against. Having a gospel-centered motivation, and just an encouragement for those of us, we, you know, for some of us we feel that way. Some of us we've experienced it before. Some of us are just getting into that season of our lives. That's that's normal. That's normal. Paul says in Romans that we have a spiritual nature and a fleshly nature. They're constantly at war with one another. So we're constantly, we are gonna go back and forth, and that's just part of life. There are times where we're gonna be on fire for God and we're gonna have all this faith. There are other times that we're gonna, yeah, really feel down and really be driven by our fleshly desires. It's human paradigm. But part of growth and maturity is just recommitting to say, God, every single time, I'm gonna recommit, I wanna, I wanna come back to your gospel message, I wanna come back to this truth, I'm gonna come back to the cross. And I just want to look at the cross. I just want to focus on the cross. And just realize, God, you know what? I realize everything has been paid for already. Everything. My stress, my brokenness, my hurts, everything. And maybe we just need to spend some time just at the foot of the cross this morning. And maybe we've drifted far away from it. Maybe we've forgotten. We've just been doing our Christian life. Let's let's do that this morning. Let's just come to the foot of the cross. Let's just humble ourselves. And let's remember, regardless of where we're at, whether we're on fire before God, whether we're struggling, whether we're apathetic, let's just come before the cross and say, God, this is what you did for me. let's just sit there for a moment let's just allow that that death the torture the pain the blood that Jesus endured to be the foundation that we build anything that we want to do off of so can we just do that just for a couple moments if you want to reflect go ahead and do that if you want to pray on your own go ahead and do that let's just come and let's just sit for the cross let's just come before Christ in that way reflect on his death Let's come come into this this time of just response and worship together. Let's do that together.